welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar, where we talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Johanna Friedrich's daughter, who's written about the role of the warrior Valkyrie myth in Viking culture. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Johanna Katrin Friedrich's daughter, author of Valkyrie, the Women of the Viking World, published by Bloomsbury Academic, April 2nd, 2020. So first, uh, tell me, how did you get into studying and writing a book on this subject? Um, thank you, Chris, for having me here. Um, I started um, just when I was probably a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from Iceland, and in Iceland you hear about Vikings growing up, and you have to read um, Viking literature or sagas and poetry in school. And I was just really, really fascinated by all of these um, mythical creatures and the stories. And then I kind of um, veered off path for a few years, but I came back to it when I was um, in graduate school. And then um, after graduate school, I was teaching here and there. And, you know, I would just get so many questions about um, women in the Viking Age that I decided to write a book. And uh, now it's out. Hmm, Okay. And uh, and I'll and I'll add. I think I forgot to mention. Thank you for speaking with me. Absolutely uh, delighted. Yes. So I see that. Uh, I guess there are different approaches uh, you could have taken in writing the book. Um, and I see you've broken it down, sort of the different ages, human ages. You know, infancy mm-hmm. all the way to old age. Um, why did you break the book down in that manner? Well, I. Th- I think it was a good way of synthesizing many different sources. So um, Judith Yash, who wrote Women of the Viking Age, um, Women in the Viking Age, sorry, um, she uh, broke her book down into like archaeological sources and then, you know, written sources and so on. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to do something different from her. Um, and uh, it was actually my friend and former supervisor, Caroline Larrington, um, who suggested this breakdown. And um, it just turned off, out to be such a good way of organizing things because, um, you know, for women, um, their life would have been kind of very different at di- different ages. Um, and so, you know, the difference between being a teenager and being unmarried and then um, you know, being a married woman and having your own household to run, you know, you would have had like quite a different life. And then again, if you were an old woman um, and a widow, maybe. And so it just turned out to be a really good way of kind of breaking things down. People people seem to kind of uh, enjoy that uh, way of thinking about things as well. Mm-hmm. So tell me, uh, so let's for for listeners what uh date ranges are we talking about what regions and what di- what is the idea of the valkyrie that we're talking about here um yes so i'll just start with the um period so the viking age um sort of starts in around 800 and um then it kind of starts with quite a uh, small scale you know, war bands going around from Scandinavia um, and they start, you know, going to England and the north coast of Europe and like doing small scale attacks. And then the kind of official end date of the Viking Age is often said to be 1066 um, when 
uh, the, the Battle of Stamford Bridge in York. Mm-hmm. And um, sort of the Viking Age has kind of several different phases. And so, as I say, in the beginning, it's just quite small scale and disorganized. And then kind of in the middle of the ninth century, it, it becomes much of a bit, you know, bigger thing. And um, the Vikings get, they seem to be better organized and the sort of, you know, armies are bigger and so on. And, um, and then it sort of ends, yeah, with the kind of, more organized, uh, you know, state formation and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like um, a lot of the Vikings were kind of originally from Norway, Denmark, and Sweden. Mm-hmm. And then they, I mean, they didn't just kind of go off and, um, you know, pillage and raid. They also went and settled in different um, areas. And, you know, most uh, England and then uh, the Faroe Islands and Iceland. Mm-hmm. And they they went to Greenland. Um, they we don't know why um, there aren't any Norse in Greenland anymore. Exactly, there's all kinds of um, theories with sort of varying degrees of uh, plausibility. Um, and then we know that Vikings made it all the way to Newfoundland, at least if not further, um, in North America. But um, but they never seem to kind of have established any sort of permanent, um, you know settlement there so it seems to have been more of a kind of just a a period that they were there and they were probably trading with natives and um maybe you know getting raw materials but but they never managed to um, establish themselves there Mm -hmm. properly so how do the valkyrie then um how are they involved in in this whole cultural movement and, and you know so on yeah so valkyries are really fascinating creatures and they have kind of many different sides um but sort of at the the sort of basic level they are supernatural uh female creatures and they um so their name basically means the choosers of the slain and it's in the feminine so they are women and um they are sent by odin uh to battle and they seem to hover over the battlefield in some sources and, and sort of they're present there and they decide who dies and uh, who lives. And then out of the dead, they choose certain uh, warriors um, and they take them back to Odin and uh, Valhalla where um, they get to like feast in the evenings and fight all day uh, for sport. And it's just this kind of, you know, fa- uh, fantasy of an afterlife where you're fed and um, entertained um, sort of uh, until Ragnarok, which is the sort of Nordic apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And um, and the Valkyries also serve th- these warriors ale once they get to Valhalla. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the kind of basic image of them. But then, you know, the... There are all kinds of different manifestations and different um, written sources of them, so we can maybe discuss them in more detail. Yeah, I was fascinated. Uh, I think in, in either in the book or the description, you talk about how they weren't these necessarily these beautiful-looking, you know, blonde-haired goddesses, but rather these blood-covered, you know, mm. wild-looking women. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, you know, I think that surprises a lot of people. I mean, there are some sources, um, like there's one poem that um, describes this conversation between the Valkyrie and the Raven. Mm-hmm. And in that poem, the Valkyrie seems to be quite beautiful, and she has this kind of white blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And I always sort of pictured her, you know, a little bit like Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. She's sort of extremely beautiful, but... Um, other sources, other poets, they describe them kind of in a much more sometimes even gory way. So they, you know, they have sort of splatters of blood on their um, their chain mail. And um, there's even one poem that um, describes them as kind of really gleeful about the prospect of war and um, the dead warriors, you know, they almost have this like, you know, they're just really excited about the, <laughs> about, you know, going there to harvest them. Um, and there's another poem that describes the Valkyries as um, essentially weaving the battle um, sort of metaphorically. And it describes this uh, weaving happening like, you know, Viking women actually had to, you know, weave all the textiles. And so they're... <laughs> Instead of using yarn made out of wool, um, they are using guts. Mm-hmm. And there's this warp-weighted loom. And, you know, in in real life, people used to use um, stones to weigh the, you know, all the threads with. But in the poem, <laughs> it's actually like the skulls of the dead en- enemies. And um, so it's really, really gory. And there's just blood sp- splattering all over the place. Um, and it's not very nice. <laughs> Is this imagery... I'm curious what this imagery reflects, um, what Viking warriors thought about battle and war. You know, was it a celebration to an extent and also just a, an understanding of just the viciousness of it? Or, or what does it mean? Yeah, I I think it's really, um, as you say, I mean, what I find really interesting about it is that it gives us more of a maybe complex and, you know, more of a nuanced access to um, the way the Vikings might have thought about war and battle and that, you know, the kind of stereotypical image is that they're just hyper-masculine, they're fighting machines, they don't have any fear, and they just go into battle, you know, they're eager. Mm -hmm. And um, there's like a line, laughing shall I die, from a Viking poem that's kind of cited often as as like the kind of ultimate Viking attitude um, to going into war. Mm -hmm. But I would say that kind of looking more close, closely at the Valkyries and at the, this kind of Viking poetry, it really shows that, you know, it, there's a little bit, bit more complexity behind that sort of uh, cliche and um, sort of ambivalence sometimes. And I mean, of course, the sort of all of the splattering and the guts all over the place and everything that you know, probably applies to your enemies uh, and not to yourself necessarily. But, you know, there's there's one Viking poem, um, for example, that um, it's composed after the death of this king called Haukun the Good. And the poem sort of um, shows him as extremely heroic and he even, like, takes off his armor in order to kind of rally his own troops. Hmm. And, and make them, you know, more brave and so on. Um, but then he um, he gets, so he wins the battle, uh, but he himself um, gets wounded and he kind of bleeds out. 
and it takes him a while to die. And there's this conversation that he has with a Valkyrie who's there to collect him and take him to Odin. And he um, he says, you know, why did it go this way? And he, he's obviously not that happy about having died, really. Um, so, you know, even, even if he's so brave himself in this battle, um, he sort of seems to have this ambivalent idea about that or attitude to dying. Mm-hmm. And then there, there are some kind of more like softer images of Valkyries that might sort of connect to that and show, you know, the sort of maybe uh, ambivalent feelings about just being in these war bands and um, maybe not having a lot of female company and maybe, you know, leaving, <laughs> leaving behind your wife or, um, you know, your, your home and um, this kind of Valkyrie maybe reflects some of those conversations that people might have had. I'm speaking with Johanna Katrin Friedrich's daughter, author of Valkyrie. You can find more information at vikingwomen.org. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow, like, and comment on my website, warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook and Twitter at Warscholar, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar. If you like sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space, business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. Where did uh, the idea of the Valkyrie first appear? What what writing or what, you know, even archaeological evidence? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's sort of difficult to date a lot of the Viking um, evidence with, you know, 100% certainty because um, the written sources that we have, they are written down in the 1200s and... They are sagas, and so they, they are like prose, um, almost like novels sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so they're, um, you know, their authors were extremely good writers, and um, the way that they describe things, you know, it, it's not always exactly true. You know, there's probably a, a lot of truth in it, but um, we have to kind of sort out sometimes when they, they have, you know, maybe rhetorical see uh sort of techniques or um you know dream sequences and all kinds of more literary aspects but then they cite poetry from the viking age um probably a lot of it is you know original because um it was written in a meter that's really rigid and um, difficult to change Hmm. and so if you memor if you memorize it um it's sort of difficult to replace one word with another if you kind of you know, maybe you don't remember what word it's supposed to have, but then there's not a lot of possibilities because the meter is so rigid. Mm, okay. And so a lot of people, um, scholars, want to kind of take the the poems that are cited in these prose sagas as, you know, more authentic as a source for the Viking Age. Um, and the kind of oldest poetry that we have is you know, from the ninth, ninth century. Um, and the, the Valkyries, I mean, even in the kind of quite early poetry, there's they're not always the same um, between poets. So if we're talking about like maybe the these 10th century poems, 
you know, the the two, I, I actually talked about two of them before, uh, the one with the kind of Valkyrie who looks like Daenerys, <laughs> and then um, the sort of the other Valkyrie who is having this conversation with the king who's dying, and she's not described at all physically, she's not beautiful, and um, she's not really you know, nice or, or, you know, unpleasant or anything. She's just extremely kind of matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of, even that those two 10th century sources give you, you know, slightly different presentations of the same sort of mythical figure. But then if you, if you want to go and look at archaeological evidence, um, that's also kind of, exciting but sometimes um, challenging to deal with because when you find um, for example little figurines in the ground um, these detectorists for example they find um, sometimes like silver figurines and you know it's someone who looks like a woman Mm. and she's holding a sword and a shield but you know does that represent a Valkyrie or an actual human warrior woman Mm-hmm. And um, and the same, you know, with the picture stones. There, are, there's this island um, in the Baltic Sea called Gotland, and they have the, these um, so-called picture stones there um, that were raised uh, probably as sort of like tombstones or memorial stones for you know probably warrior chieftains. Mm-hmm. And they often have these like panels where they're clearly depicting war. And so they have these warriors, and they they have sh- sh- shields and spears and swords, and then um, there's one that has you know like a warrior on a horse, and it, the horse looks like it has eight legs, like uh, you know Odin's horse Sleipnir. Mm-hmm. And there's so there's a guy on the horse, and then there's a woman facing them, and she's holding a cup, mm-hmm. and you don't know whether. This is supposed to be Odin, or maybe a dead warrior who's being brought to Valhalla on Odin's horse. And, you know, the female figure might be a Valkyrie, or it might be Odin's wife, Frigg, or it might be Freya, the goddess, who is, um, in one Viking poem, she's said to receive half of the slain. Um, but that, that is something that kind of, we don't really know very much about, and um, that's sort of sadly <laughs> sort of very tantalizing um clue but but um if there was like a belief that Odin would get half of the dead warriors and Freya the other half mm-hmm. like that sort of part of the story doesn't really get ele- uh, get elaborated on very much um in the other sources so how much evidence i don't think there's much but how much is there of um women actually fighting yeah. Um, so again, I, I guess I could try to separate it a little bit into the written sources and archaeological sources. And if we take the written sources first, these sagas that I was talking about um, before with um, all the skaldic poetry embedded in them, they form like a big part of the saga tradition that's um, called the King's Sagas or Heimskringla. And um, they never show women in battle. They kind of um, have women sort of partaking in politics. Mm. And that was obviously a big, you know, sort of other aspect of high-level Viking society. But they're not on the battlefield itself. 
But then in sort of, there's another tradition of sagas um, called legendary sagas, and that's where you see them start showing up, and um, these uh, warrior women. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, those sagas are extremely exciting, and they're very well told, but they're also set in a sort of very legendary, mythical sphere. And so, you know, some of the examples that are sometimes cited um, there's not always a lot of context given. So if you read a saga and there's a warrior woman, but then there's also a dragon and a dwarf, you know, and kind of mm. Odin shows up, you know, you can't really take that saga at face value. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you can take any saga at face value, but um, sort of in general, it seems that if you're writing a saga in the 13th century, you can put a warrior woman in, you know, a sort of, space where there are these legendary mythical figures but you can't really if you're telling the story of the history of norway um and you're having you know you're narrating all these battles that were fought and so on you can't really have a white uh woman fighting in those types of stories so that kind of gives us some clue as to probably reality if you want to call it that Hmm. um i mean i Judging from the written sources, I would be very sort of hesitant to say that um, this was a role for women because, you know, the written sources show teenage girls as like usually quite sort of powerless in many ways. Like they they don't sort of legally um, have the power to um, consent in marriage. So they're like legally they're just supposed to marry whoever their family wants them to marry. Mm. And, you know, the idea that you would be a young teenage girl and get training, you know, as a warrior isn't really found in the sagas in the same way as, as like young men are being depicted as um, getting training and like weapons and, and a retinue and ships and so on, mm-hmm. you know, when they sort of come of age. And, you know, I could <laughs> probably go on about this in much more detail, but I guess I'll switch over to the archaeological sources. Mm-hmm. So the, the big debate has been about um, recently about a grave that was found in Birka in Sweden, and it's really an interesting grave. Um, and it was actually actually excavated a really long time ago um, in the 1880s. So it wasn't a new grave, but um, quite recently there was a DNA study done of the bones that were in that grave, and they turned out to be female. And then there's like one other grave that was in sort of southern Norway that uh, is also being studied in the same way as I understand, um, sort of excavated a hundred years ago. But then um, you know the bones are being reanalyzed, and um, in both of these graves there were lots of uh, weapons. The Birka grave, you know, the Swedish one, um, was absolutely spectacular, and it had you know. Uh, a full sort of set of weapons and it had, had two horses and really splendid clothes and, and sort of it was always considered a very traditional warrior grave and then it was also like close to a garrison on that island um, and then you know when the, the bones turned out to be female it sort of threw up so many <laughs> different questions <laughs> yeah I imagine yeah so um, you know I mean there's I guess there's like a sort of spectrum of, of opinions on this or, or um, 
interpretations. And um, I mean, one thing that people point out is that the sort of the idea of a warrior needs to be maybe um, defined a little bit. And how do we define, you know, a grave as a warrior grave? And is the presence of weapons um, the kind of main condition? And they sort of point out that graves uh, have been found with lots of weapons with little boys in them. Hmm. And so that, you know, suggests that there was much more of a, like a funeral was a much more of a symbolic um, performance than necessarily reflecting real life. And so that, you know, if, if you buried a little boy of maybe nine years old with a full set of weapons, um, that, you know, you're saying something about your family and your status and maybe your uh, values and ideology and what that boy was supposed to grow up to be or um, you know you're saying something about your lineage and the tradition of your family and you know people pointed out with the bones in the burka grave that they don't seem to show any uh, sort of signs of training physical training or you know wounds that healed in the previous wounds or mm-hmm. wounds that were acquired you know maybe when this person died and um, there's been, like, for example, there was this mass grave found in England, in Oxford, actually, where um, it was a whole group of, of Norse young men, and they all had, like, various sort of wounds that had healed. And so people say, well, th- those must have been warriors who were there, <laughs> and then they got unlucky mm-hmm. um, in some battle and, and uh, all got thrown into this, this mass grave. I think they were de- decapitated as well. Hmm. But anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, so, yeah, like there's there's a lot of debate about this Burka grave. It does seem strange, though, that you would have so much tradition or so much imagery of women as warriors and yet hmm. still argue that um, there couldn't have been women warriors. I don't know. I'm just, you know, just kind of speculating, just kind of thinking out loud. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's nobody or the, not there are many people who would deny the possibility of, you know, any woman ever in the Viking Age having fought. Mm-hmm. I think people are much more interested in kind of discussing what basis we can use and, you know, also maybe how common it was and what the sort of practicalities behind that were. And I mean, one thing that I pointed out in the book is that, um, I mean, until quite recently, you didn't actually have effective birth control. And so, you know, women just (laughs) biologically, you know, it's, it's very difficult for a woman maybe in the Viking age to, you know, prevent pregnancy or unwanted pregnancies. Mm -hmm. And so like for a woman to be in a Viking war band, um, like how practical is that going to be, you know, in the long term? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to be dragging, you know, a baby around in that sort of lifestyle necessarily mm-hmm. um, if you're, you know, if you're expected to fight. But, you know, the, there's also like a mass grave in Repton in England where I think um, that was another sort of Viking raid gone wrong. Um, I can't remember. It was over 200 people. Mm-hmm. And 20% of them uh, were women. I think um, that was the sort of latest figure that I have. 
And so people have kind of talked a lot about, like, what would they have been doing there? Were they um, warriors? But um, there's actually some sources, for example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that was written in England in this this turbulent period, obviously by the the English from their perspective, and they talk about um, some Vikings kind of putting away their women and children in safety uh, before a battle. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of research um, happening in terms of maybe auxiliary roles that you needed, you know, when you had this kind of army that was going around in England. Mm-hmm. You needed, you know, all kinds of people, like, b- besides the warriors, you know, to, to perform just a, a whole multitude of roles. Um, so it's it's really complicated. I think, um, as I say, like, it just really raises so many questions about, like, what is a warrior? How do we f- define a warrior in, in the grave? Like, um, how do people just um, push against boundaries? And, um, yeah. So I have a, so you mentioned auxiliary roles. Um, mm. Were any women involved in um, blacksmithing and in, in making weapons or any of the armor or any of that? Or was it that it, men generally did that? Um, I think that's, um, it's really difficult, again, with the sort of evidence, because when you have evidence for workshops, like archaeological, you can't really see the the sex of the person who was doing the blacksmithing or the crafting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a few images of um, like blacksmiths in, in uh, written sources where they're male, but I mean, again, like you couldn't really say that like no woman ever um, was a blacksmith in the Viking Age. There were, you know, women were definitely involved in all kinds of crafts, and um, probably, you know, some of them on a sort of itinerant basis, maybe, or sort of part-time. I mean, I would think that the textiles, um, that their textile work was, you know, probably much more extensive, maybe, than um, other crafts. But, um, but yeah, like I, the, the sort of most recent um, archaeological work that I've read about this, they they tend to talk about craftspeople rather than, you know, men solely doing this kind of work. I'm speaking with Johanna Katrin Friedrich's daughter, author of Valkyrie. You can find more information at vikingwomen.org. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please follow, like, and comment on my website, warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook and Twitter at warscholar, and on Instagram at chrisalvarezwarscholar. If you like sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com and fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space, business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. Do you notice a difference um, in stories about Valkyrie? Do you notice a difference in uh, regions or periods? You know, is there, are you able to differentiate between areas that had more fighting or more violence than others? Or was it, is it all kind of mixed together? Um, yeah, I mean, the sort of nature of the sources um, sort of dictates a lot of the work. And, you know, for example, with Sweden, 
And to some extent, Denmark, there's just less evidence um, to go with in terms of written sources. Um, but those areas are, for example, richer in other evidence like, you know, rune stones, for example. And the rune stone tradition is very um, rich in Sweden. There's, um, there, there are these stones that people raised um, in memory of someone. But those inscriptions, it's really um, interesting, again, sort of thinking about just the material nature of the evidence is that people were carving inscriptions um, in stones that were really hard. And so that's partly why the runic alphabet is so angular. And these inscriptions are usually really short as well because it was just labor-intensive to carve them. And there's almost um, no evidence about Valkyries in these um, uh, inscriptions. But um, there are actually a couple, but they are so, like, brief and elusive. And, like, one of them um, just talks about a wolf as the steed of a Valkyrie. Mm. And, um, And so that's... It sort of gives you a little, sort of, you know, brief little image of a Valkyrie riding on a wolf, which is actually not common in the sort of West Norse sources. Um, those are usually, they, they depict Valkyries as riding on horses. And giantesses are actually uh, riding on wolves. But there might be some kind of connection between giantesses and Valkyries that hasn't been explored very much. But... Um, I would say, like, in in the West Norse sources, um, I mean, there is this sort of, already, as I was saying, like, quite early on, there's slightly different perspectives on, on the same figure. But then, you know, as time goes by, um, the, the poets and, you know, people thinking about Valkyries, they start embellishing them or, you know, uh, they, they clearly have different perspectives. And so there's, like, one poem... Um, which is really hard to date um, because it's it's from a different tradition than the skaldic poetry in some ways, uh, which is called Edic poetry, and the meter is um, a lot simpler. So they um, there's this one poem about a Valkyrie and her human lover, and w- what's really interesting in that poem is that she um, they have this relationship, and she is kind of supernatural. And, like, her her role, according to the mythology, is that she's supposed to go and, like, choose the the best warrior to die and come, you know, and join Odin's uh, retinue. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't want him to die because she's in love with him. And she can only have a relationship with him if he's not in Valhalla. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) So she, like, keeps him alive and protects him in battle instead of um, choosing him, which is you know, kind of the opposite of her uh, traditional role. And then he kind of, um, they, so they get like, you know, don't, don't ask me how this works <laughs> in a <laughs> mythical universe, but they get married and have children, but then she loses her powers. And then, you know, she's, so she's just a human woman and not a Valkyrie anymore, which isn't very exciting for the hero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then so eventually he actually falls in battle and dies, and he's like in his burial mound. And she um, tries to get him to stay in the burial mound, like in this kind of undead, you know, 
state, like that he's a corpse, so he he would be like a zombie. But then, mm. you know, her perspective is that they can at least be together. Um, <laughs> but he decides that he wants to go to Valhalla and be with Odin and like all the guys. Um, and so it's really sort of an interesting exploration of of this whole you know reality and ideology um, around war and what the you know people's maybe different perspectives might have been and especially for maybe a woman sending off her husband or uh, or partner this that's interesting this this particular piece you're talking about seems to transition seems to be not religious mythology but rather a literary approach um, mm. to the concept absolutely yeah so i mean then you know after people convert to christianity um there's you know you don't really you can't really believe in valkyries anymore and kind of maintain that whole belief system um where you you have the promise of going to valhalla when you die but there is this kind of still like just the the whole culture is like all of the language is so based in the mythology and the legends and everything so there is this kind of you know they they allow themselves to continue with the same language even though they don't really believe that that you're going to go to Valhalla anymore but you can kind of still talk about the Valkyrie coming to to get you or prepare a bet for you you know even a couple of hundred years maybe after the conversion so uh, I'm going to turn to uh you mentioned some of the um, resources you used for your research. Um, before we go there, are there any other um, significant themes or issues in the book that we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to mention? Well, I suppose one thing that um, interested me a lot when I started doing the research and um, seems to sort of always surprise people is the issue of the sails. And have you ever thought about um, the sails on the Viking ships? If I may ask. Have I thought about them? No, I, I guess yeah. I just imagine them being there. Yeah, I know. It's um, So I started writing about this and, and reading up on it. And I was so blown away when I started to learn about the sort of um, experiments that people have done with, you know, how long does it actually take to make a sale? Mm -hmm. And it would have taken one person working full time four to five years. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so sails are made out of wool, mm -hmm. usually, uh, or were. And, um, I mean, they are probably as big as, like, a, you know, an apartment, um, just the square square meters. Mm -hmm. And um, in order to get that amount of textile, you need, you know, hundreds of kilos of, of wool from sheep, and then you have to process the wool and um, sort of sort it and comb it and then you have to spin it and um in order to do that you have to know how to spin and like have that skill uh which is something that girls were probably taught from a young age mm -hmm. and then once you have the yarn ready um then it's time to like start weaving and it you know it just takes a really long time to weave let's say like a square yard of, of fabric mm -hmm. and um, and so you just weave and weave and weave, and then you have to attach all of it together. And they probably 
um, put something on the textiles as well, you know, just to make them more windproof and just make them last longer. So that would have been um, some sort of fat, probably. And um, But if you made a really good sale, that could last you for years. But what surprised me was that, you know, most of this work seems to be women's work, and it doesn't really get talked about in, in you know, the sagas very much, um, nor does it sort of get, get featured very much in the kind of more, like, popular histories that you read about Vikings. But mm-hmm. um, what, when I started doing all this work, I sort of came to the realization that, like, if they hadn't had sails, they wouldn't have been able to go <laughs> these, you know, far distances across the Atlantic and so on. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, like, the... I think I read somewhere that the the sail is as like ex- expensive as the ship, and it's you know there's just as much um, sort of skill involved in making it, and so on. And so if we if they hadn't had all this technology and all these skills and resources, um, which were kind of the domain of women, mm. um, the the whole Viking Age probably wouldn't have happened as it did. Oh, that's yeah, that's pretty fascinating. I never, yeah, I always took it for granted. Yeah, they had sails and you know, <laughs> and sailed across the seas and and did mm-hmm. their thing. But yeah, this this idea that a sail is as expensive as um as important as the ship itself is um yeah that that makes for some interesting uh, thinking and ideas mm-hmm. there. Okay, so you did um. You have mentioned some of the resources you used. Can you go into more detail about um, where you found uh, the works that you uh, studied and and the archaeological evidence? Did you just read the the papers, or were you able to go to any sites and, and see any of the objects that were yeah. discovered? Well, I so I'm originally, you know, a, a scholar who works with written sources. Um, it's sort of difficult to call yourself you know, a literary historian or a pure historian. I mean, um, but anyway, I, I work with written sources and then um, you have to kind of get a lot of training and as I was talking about, sort of rhetorical um, devices, for example. So you kind of have to learn how to recognize when this, when an author is, you know, clearly making something up um, for effect or, you know, when they might actually be talking about something that was real. And um, so that's kind of um, where I'm coming from. And then uh, I study the manuscripts themselves, the physical objects, you know, where the texts are actually kept or where they were written down in the 13th, 14th centuries. Mm-hmm. And so that was my background. And I mean, also sort of understanding a manuscript, um, you know, who pays for it, like who has the skills um, to write, and um, yeah, who, who has the resources, like all the calves or whatever animal you have to mm-hmm. you know, kill in order to, to make it. I mean, that basically decides a lot of, like, whose stories get told, for example. Yeah, so that was my background, and then when I was teaching things like Norse mythology and sagas and so on, um, you kind of, you have to start going much more into the picture stones and the archaeology, and um, you, you have to sort of be able to be much more multidisciplinary in order to just um, understand the whole background to the written sources mm-hmm. and kind of... Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I've i never, like, dug, um, been on an archaeological dig or anything like that, but I 
I've read a whole lot of archaeology and then I've gone, you know, to museums and I've gone to lots of places like in Scandinavia. And, um, you know, because sometimes the, the sources are just standing out there just in the countryside in the field somewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that can be really fascinating. So that's my my main background. It seems that um, since since the sources that uh, we have now were basically copies made, you know, a few century, a century or so after the original sources were created, it gives mm-hmm. me the impression that uh, sponsors, these rich sponsors or the monks or whoever wrote these down, mm-hmm. could pick and choose which stories. Is it po- do Do you get the sense that certain stories? I don't know how you could analyze this but um you know let's say there were stories that that promoted women fighters more could could it be that those stories weren't copied down because they were rejected for some reason or do you think there was it's a random sampling that kind of uh that what we have that exists does give a feel for what's out there or was out there yeah i mean i think it's um it's really complicated obviously to sort of argue from evidence that's not there right. um, and, and sort of should be done very carefully. Um, there's, I mean, the sort of main way that you can do that is when there's a reference, like in a saga, for example, or a manuscript. Like there's one Icelandic manuscript where it says, um, please have copied here this other saga, um, you know, when you find the time or, or yeah. uh, something. So we know that there was, there was probably some saga that, um, uh, hasn't been recorded, but um, yeah, sometimes I mean, the, sometimes you get the same myth told in two different ways. Um, and so, for example, um, Snorri Sturluson, who um, was this chieftain in the early 13th century in Iceland, and he had all these connections in Norway, and he sort of very much wanted to be a a big fish um, <laughs> in in Iceland, um, and he. He wrote this textbook about Norse mythology, and he was kind of explaining where some of the language comes from. And so, if if you didn't know all of the backstory, then you wouldn't understand, you know, some of the concepts. So he kind of decided to write a textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes you get like a story, a myth. You know, say there's, for example, a myth about um, this god Freyr, and um, he sees this woman from Odin's high seat. And he's not supposed to go into Odin's high seat, um, so he's um, he's kind of transgressing. Um, but he sees this woman and, and falls madly in love with her, and sends um, his servant to go and like woo her on his behalf. And Snorri kind of tells that myth um, just very sort of matter of factly, and and it's sort of like a love story. And then he just says, oh, and then you know she was wooed on his behalf, and then they married and had you know ex son. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's like a poem, an Eddic poem, which is preserved elsewhere. And that tells that myth, you know, slightly differently. And there's, there's, um, like the woman doesn't want to marry Freyr and, um, sort of tries to resist. And then the servant starts making all of these, um, he, he, he tries to bribe her and she still says no. And then he starts threatening her with all kinds of really terrible things and, you know, sexual violence and, and all sorts. Um, and so it's, it's just kind of a fluke that we have that particular poem, you know, and, and that it was preserved 
you know, all of these myths were probably told in different ways by different people. And um, again, like, you know, the, the sort of all the battles, I mean, we, we know their outcomes and everything, but I'm sure that everyone would have told them slightly, told, told the story slightly differently mm. from their perspective. So it's, it's really kind of, um, again, like keeping in mind, you know, who is telling the story and um, why they might have been interested in their particular, you know, in what they emphasize, for example, and, and what their perspective is, is something that um, you sort of, with more experience, you start to, you know, be able to kind of recognize that and, and like, sometimes you need to read against what the narrator wants you to, you know, clearly wants you to think. Hmm. How much do the written sources match up at all with um, archaeological evidence? Is there any crossover at all or does it seem that they're totally independent as far as supporting each other yeah i mean it's really um interesting i mean um a lot of the time they do harmonize you know at least like in the sort of big um overall picture and uh what's really interesting i think is when for example um you know with the vinland journeys or or um, the, 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 these Norse discoveries of um, Newfoundland. Um, that so there have been these sagas preserved in Iceland um, for centuries that the Vikings had actually been all the way to North America. But um, it, in the 60s, it was actually confirmed by archaeological excavations, and they were able to, you know, they they discovered this building that was, you know, built in the the Viking style, the longhouse style, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and they found, like, items there that were, like, in the Viking um, tradition, or they were definitely made by Vikings. And so, you know, that's really fascinating when something like that happens. But um, then sometimes the reverse um, sort of happens as well, that, like, for example, I think there's a farm that was dug up two years ago or three years ago in Iceland in a place where there's no written source that it ever um, was there. And so, um, you know, you just imagine what stories have been lost, maybe, <laughs> um, because nobody ever, maybe those people weren't important enough or maybe they <laughs> had some enemies who mm -hmm. didn't want to tell their story or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. So in doing this research, what part of it was most enjoyable for you? I think, yeah, the, the sort of most enjoyable thing was probably just when I kind of cracked how to write um, this particular book. Um, I think I was a little sort of wobbly in the beginning, and I hadn't really found the tone. And and then I think I was maybe one or two chapters in, and I just really found my stride. And, mm -hmm. and I really started enjoying it in a way that, um, you know, writing can be hard work, and it can be lonely, and... Um, you know, sometimes you're just working really hard, <laughs> hard on a text and it just doesn't really come together. But when you sort of find your stride, that's always great. And then I really enjoyed that stuff about the textiles. I just thought that was so fascinating. What did you find that was most surprising in your research? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, again, the textiles and, and just how much work it was to make a shirt, you know, that was weeks and weeks. Um, but then I guess also um, one thing that I 
like I, I hadn't really questioned very much was, um, for example, the image of Freya, the goddess, as um, kind of a fertility and love goddess. And that's something that, you know, I guess I had been just reading and accepting quite passively um, when I was younger. And then I think probably because I was just teaching very <laughs> um, clever students and very inquisitive and they would, mm-hmm. you know, want to know why. And they would ask, you know, where is the evidence for that? <laughs> and I would say, I don't know, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, there isn't really, there aren't like the myths about Freya. They aren't really about love or anything. Um, and, you know, the, this thing that she gets half of this lane, you know, why aren't there any stories about that? Um, but then there's a myth about her where there's this... Um, invader who comes into the uh, the realm of the gods and um he's like a giant and he's very scary and thor is away and thor is the muscle in the sort of you know in the mythology mm-hmm. and so the gods don't really know what to do and so um they sort of you know sit him down and start giving him something to eat and drink and everything and then he's this giant he's really scary and unpleasant and um gets increasingly drunk and they don't really know how to deal with him. And then Freya is the only one who will kind of go and just try to, you know, pacify him. And and she's like showing him all kinds of honor and she's giving him drink and so on. And this sort of buys the gods time until Thor comes and and is able to do away with this, this invader. And, um, and there's a few other myths about her where, you know, it's, um, not really clear to me, you know, why she would, um, why Snorri um, would say that she, she's the goddess of love, and I think that's just something that he, like, he doesn't really know what to say about her or something. I'm not really sure why he says that. Hmm. Um, it's maybe just, you know, um, sort of he's under the the influence from, from like uh, more more romantic tales that were current when he was alive. I see. Was there a question? I know there's a lot of parts in this research that you don't have any kind of answers for, but was there a particular um, question that was uh, very difficult to research that you didn't come to an answer to, or one that you finally did come to some kind of conclusion that you liked, but it was just very difficult to reach? Um, Well, I suppose with the warrior women, um, I was kind of going, you know, going into all of these different sources and I mean it was it was really complicated you know to kind of get my head around all of the different textual sources archaeological sources and then you know you have graves and then you have these images um you know on like there's a you have these images and you have um like there's this grave that was found in Norway called the Oseberg burial, which um, had two women in it, and it it had so much um, sort of many treasures, and they are extremely sort of gendered uh, as feminine, and the, you know, so there's a, a, a loom, for example, and um, textile making equipment, and so on, and um, really sort of lots of precious objects. And, um, but then there's this sort of uh, remnants of a tapestry that was, um, probably intended to, to, to hang in the afterlife with them. 
and it has these like figures on it um who sort of are human-like but then they sometimes have like very pointy faces um that might like be masks they've been interpreted as masks Mm -hmm. um and so because they're so pointy they sort of are reminiscent of birds and so that connects to valkyries because valkyries fly and some of them um seem to be able to like um change themselves into birds and then freya has a bird shape that she so she can like become a bird basically Hmm. and it's like you're you're dealing with evidence you know that doesn't have any labels and it's from different geographical areas and different periods and you're you know you're trying to sort of synthesize it and interpret it um without you know over-interpreting it, but then you also don't want to just say something that's completely non-committal and bland, um, because you want to try to offer some kind of explanation as to what it means. Um, so it is sort of tricky just to understand the nature of all these different sources and, and um, try to make sense of them and then try to communicate that without like getting really, really technical mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and sort of, you know, yeah, like... You know, I don't want to make everything sound super easy and like, oh, you know, oh, look at this um, tapestry. This must be Valkyries. I mean, I try to explain to the readers a little bit like how um, we must be careful, but blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a a tricky balance, as I say, like where to sort of draw the line as to how much background to go into without being like oversimplifying things. Mm -hmm. Actually, some of what you said, um, it made me think how after a battle, the battlefields must have been had crows everywhere just eating on the dead. And it's interesting to change that that um, happening into sort of a a mythical, you know, oh, these are the these are the gods taking taking Mm -hmm. the warriors or, you know, that they have these forms that it's kind of odd. Yeah, but I mean, I guess it it must have somehow made people feel better or, you know, helped to rationalize something that is completely irrational, really, or, you know, why it's the same with in the poetry, you know, this this king that I was talking about who's kind of like, why did I die? And it must be really hard, kind of maybe if you're a survivor of a battle and you know why did my best friend die and i didn't and mm-hmm. if you can rationalize that as like the decision of some kind of higher power mm-hmm. then maybe that like helps you sort of go and do it again or send your son off and do it you know in a few years mm-hmm. um and just kind of buy into the whole ideology um of, of, of you know viking age warfare mm-hmm. it makes me wonder i this is just a totally random question but I wonder if crows, <laughs> if if they kind of hung around, you know, armies knowing that there would be, you know, there's probably waste food or maybe mm-hmm. not, you know, um, you know, they're ready. I just wonder the image of the crow and war and like this, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And in Norse mythology, it just makes me wonder how it all came together in addition to just the battlefield. Yeah, crows, eagles, and wolves are the sort of traditional beasts of battle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're certainly sort of lurking all around and hovering about in the, 
mm-hmm. in the mythology and also I think in, in some of the English, you know, early medieval stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, it's a very effective, you know, image. And so it's something that a, a poet would sort of use quite, um, you know, efficiently just to evoke the sort of maybe looming <laughs> um the battle is is about to commence or the raven crows or 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 something like that it sort of it adds to the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and again this is a question that you might have no answer for but um do you have any evidence of women simply riding horses in in these cultures not yeah um yeah we do well there's um again sort of just to break it down so there's for example a really a nice image of a woman who comes to help um, her friend who's in childbirth. And so she's coming to act as a midwife for her friend. Mm-hmm. And it talks about her bridling her horse and like riding off. And I mean, I guess, you know, again, sort of always taking everything with a grain of salt, but I, I don't see any reason why somebody would make up, you know, a woman riding off it if it weren't, you know, within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just with all this um, movement that people engaged in in the Viking Age, um, they, they must have been writing. But then there are also gra- graves, like, for example, in Norway, there are graves where, um, you know, elite women were buried with, like, there's one, <laughs> for example, in Gausel, I think it was in Norway, and it was a woman with a horse's head. Mm-hmm. Um so and the the horse had like a beautiful bridle um with lots of nice golden mounts or something mm-hmm. um so you know it's it's not like again sort of hard evidence but i would say it's pretty likely that they wouldn't have put the horse's head into her grave if she didn't actually ride on it mm-hmm. and in the same vein i imagine if women and children were taken on board ships you know when during some travels that uh, they wouldn't have learned or maybe participated in some sailing activities, you know, as, yeah. as part of part of the ship's crew, so to speak. I, I wouldn't imagine they're just sitting there doing nothing. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a really good point and some, something I should have maybe mentioned in the book, but <laughs> you can't mention everything. But, but certainly, I mean, everybody was working. I mean... Like even really elite high status people, you know, they they are sort of depicted as doing some work. Um, like women are sort of doing textile work, um, maybe just like very decorative, but um, but like they're not just sitting around doing nothing. Um, and so in, in the same vein, like I think if you're on a Viking ship, you're sailing to Iceland, you're not just sitting there idly all the time. Maybe <laughs> just expected to. All hands on deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the same vein, or well, actually to build on something you had said previously, I always thought of, um, you know, when you think of Scandinavian or Norse kings or chieftains, you think, you know, that's the guy who's been most effective at gathering, you know, uh, the best soldiers or a large force. Mm-hmm. But then when you were talking about the sale, it made me realize that a successful king or chieftain not only needed the fighting men he needed the women who could you know who could create the goods the sales that he needs so he need he needs to be effective in two arenas you know marshalling troops and also effectively gathering 
producers of goods that he needs to make his kingdom successful. Yeah, and he, he probably needs to be pretty smart and have an understanding of the economy and, and like the sort of more logistical stuff. I mean, even if he's delegating some of that, I mean, he, he probably still needs to understand that it, you know, it has to be provided. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. I mean, there's also like some references in, in continental sources to Vikings like stealing um, people's cattle. And so, I mean, they, they would have had to think so much um, about like, how do you feed a whole crew of men and yeah how do you keep them clothed like what if their clothes rip in a battle like they're gonna have to have you know maybe some change of clothing and mm-hmm. there's just so much um probably that you had to think about mm-hmm. yeah was there anything you discovered that had an emotional impact on you in some way either positively or negatively i think the sagas are like they're sort of full of touching little moments um and sometimes, you know, there was, for example, there was a woman uh, who has two little boys in one saga, and there's a man who kind of goes crazy. I mean, they, they don't have the sort of language that we have to describe mental illness, but it's very clear that, um, he, you know, he has some kind of problem, and he kills her sons. And, you know, it's for no re- reason, and it just says that she dies from grief. And, um, and I sort of tried to talk sometimes about like, you know, people loved their children just as much as, as, you know, we do today. And, um, you know, even if infant mortality was so high, Mm -hmm. uh, people would still have been attached to their children. And then people suffered from, you know, all kinds of illnesses and, um, they, you know, they just didn't have the same sort of ability to talk about things that we do and understanding of, of how how these things work. And so they, you know, they sometimes kind of t- talk about um, somebody becoming possessed with something, um, some evil spirit or, you know, people probably went lost and missing. And, you know, there's stories about, um, like in Gratisaga, for example, um, there's this sort of undead zombie character who um he puts like a curse on Grettir um mm. when they fight and then um and it's like that story is so well told and they're having this sort of wrestling match in the middle of the night and it's Christmas and then the moon comes out and Grettir sees this uh zombie, you know, he looks him in the eye and um, the zombie puts a curse on him that he's never ever going to have any success for the rest of his life. And, you know, until then, he had been this, like, great Viking hero. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after that, he just, he never recovers. And um, and his his luck runs out. And, and, like, some of the things that happen to him are just, like, really sort of tragic bad luck, you know, and it's not really his fault, although some of it does seem to be his fault. And then he, like, dies an outlaw and all alone on this island. <laughs> So, I mean, it's it's like the sagas, they're just, there's so much variation and they range between all sorts of emotions and, um, you know, there's lots of, like, grand heroics and battles, but then there's just, you know, tiny little um, scenes where you just get this 
like human connection really to a person who lived, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It tells you how well they were written. Um, yeah. So, so what do you hope the book will do? I hope that, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of, I hope that it answers a lot of questions that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that it gets people interested and, um, in Vikings and want to find more, find out more about them and maybe go further. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it sort of teaches them something that they might not have thought about, but is, you know, interesting and important. Mm-hmm. You did mention some of the difficulty you had in getting your stride in writing the book, but were there any other issues you had in getting it finished or published? Uh, Not really. That all went really well. Um, I found a publisher immediately, the the first publisher I approached. Mm. And um, they, yeah, they just, they took it on and they were, they've been doing a really good job. You know, they, I think it's a beautiful book. Um, Just like, I think the photos are beautifully printed and so on. And the, the, just the sort of whole paratext and the design and the, the picture on the front is actually taken by a friend, um, Ash Thayer, mm-hmm. who is doing a documentary about women in like Viking reenactment, and especially women who are into the fighting scene. Mm-hmm. And she um, took this um, picture that she let me use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, as I say, like after I found my stride, I just thought that sort of it was just so enjoyable and. Um, I was sort of lucky enough that I I was able to access, you know, the sources that I needed just through libraries. And I mean, fortunately, more more and more people are putting up, you know, their stuff online, um, their articles and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but you still, I mean, you still need both library access, but also just the language skills and the sort of research skills in order to be able to work with the primary sources. Um, so I've been very fortunate and just, being able to write this book. Okay. Actually, the, the photo made me, it brought to mind that, that series that came out recently, Be Foreigners, if you're familiar. Oh, yeah. Have you seen it? Part of it, yeah. I, I'm enjoying it. I haven't uh, mm. watched the whole thing yet, though. Yeah. It's it's funny. <laughs> I really liked it. So what's your uh, next or current writing project? Yeah, I don't know if um, I want to tell too much, but it's definitely about Vikings, mm-hmm. and I it's going to be a biography of a certain figure from the Viking Age. Okay. Are there different dialects or language? You know, what what sort of ancient tongues do you know, or do you know any of them? Um, yeah, so Old Norse is um, it's quite similar to modern Icelandic, so I didn't have too much of a hurdle in order to deal with the sources um, in some respects. But then the language is one thing, and then the poetic language is a whole sort of layer on top of that. And, like, poets, um, you know, because Vikings, like, the only writing they did was these terse uh, runic inscriptions that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, like, they didn't have access to, like, the technology of, of like, you know, parchment and ink and, and pens and all of that stuff. Um, so it wasn't really until after the conversion to Christianity and the sort of end of the Viking Age that people started writing um, anything much in Scandinavia, like beyond these runic inscriptions. Um, 
so in, until then, um, the poetry was like the kind of way of, of telling stories a lot of the time. And, um, and so you, you sort of wanted to be the best poet and, you know, tell the story in the best way. And, and, um, there was a, it seems to be, you know, a lot of competition between the poets as to like who is just the most sort of skilled and, and has the, the, the best, like, composed poetry mm-hmm. and so you you kind of especially the more complicated poems like you just have to they're almost like little puzzles that you have to solve because um if you just say the word king and sword and spear all you know over and over again it's not going to be very interesting so they would try to they would have like all kinds of um ways of talking about these things that um, are called kennings, or they're sort of like circumlocution, circumlocutions. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So they um, they have like all these roundabout ways of, of just talking about you know the same thing over and over again. And so you kind of you have to like study study the poetry, like mm-hmm. you know, um, and think about it quite a lot. And sometimes it sort of dawns on you what they mean, but like after a lot of work and and. But sometimes, like, the less skilled ones are the sort of more generic kennings. Um, yeah, and then I guess I... So Old Norse, I mean, that was the, the kind of main language that was spoken in Scandinavia in the Viking Age. Um, although, I mean, there were migrants, you know, coming into Scandinavia, and then there's a people called the Sami, who, you know, currently, they sort of... Um, their their area in Scandinavia is called Saupmi, hmm. and they are like a, a different um, ethnic group from from the Scandinavians further south, and they have a language that's um, you know separate from the sort of the Germanic uh, you know Norwegian and Swedish and so on. Hmm. Um, but we don't really have uh, any written sources from the Viking Age in that language, and so. <laughs> but I would really like to um, study that language. And then there was a cleric called Saxo who wrote in Latin around 1200 mm-hmm. or the late 12th century. Um, so I, I mean, <laughs> I had to brush off my very old uh, Latin from from way <laughs> back, but, but uh, I did it with some help. <laughs> oh, okay. And then I read a bit of uh, old English as well. Right. Yeah. So, um, where can people find you on uh, online? Do you have a website, social media, anything like that? Yeah, I just uh, made my own website called VikingWomen.org. dot org, hmm. and I'm on Twitter as Saga Knitter. And um, both of these sites have links to where you can buy the book, but otherwise, it's um, on Bloomsbury dot com. And uh, just search for Valkyrie. And, um, yeah. Can you uh, spell the Twitter name? Saga Knitter. Yes, it's S-A-G-A and then Knitter. So K-N-I-T-T-E-R. Got it. Okay. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Uh, No, I I was really um, actually kind of thrilled to have this opportunity and think maybe about the book from a slightly... Um, different perspective um, because people I guess uh, have been kind of coming at me from slightly different directions so this was a pleasant um, surprise and I I really hope your uh, listeners um, found something to enjoy 
Oh yeah, definitely. It's fascinating stuff. I personally love the Norse saga, so I enjoyed it, and I hope well, my good. I hope my listeners do as well. They so, are great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I in the book, I actually have a list of like recommended reading, um, both for you know if you know if you had to pick one saga, like what which one should you start with, and um, and then I also have some scholarship for further reading. Oh wow, that's yeah, that's useful. That's really cool. So, uh, so yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org on YouTube at WarScholar1945, on Facebook at WarScholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez WarScholar, and on Twitter at WarScholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.